0: Hello and welcome to the Grant of Fortnightly podcast and the online edition of Horror. I'm Ted Hodgkinson, the online editor, and this week I'm delighted to be joined by Robert Coover, the author of ten novels including several landmark works of fiction, such as The Public Burning, an account of the execution of Julius and Ethel Rosenberg, in which Richard Nixon receives a startlingly and unforgettably vivid portrayal. From his first book, The Origin of the Brunists, through to A Night at the Movies and on, his writings defy easy categorization, constantly breaking the mould for what a novel or story can do in the service of being true to the form of each new work. He has kindly agreed to read his short story Vampire, after which we will discuss his writing and the intersection of myth and the modern world.
1: He sets off one day on an arduous journey to a remote kingdom, wondering, as the weeks pass, about the wisdom of it, even the purpose. When he launched forth, he was sure he had a purpose, but by the time he reaches the primitive mountain village at the edge of the wilderness, he can no longer remember it. In fact, he's not certain this was his original destination. Wasn't he going to the barbershop? It was summertime when he left, but now it's winter and the dead of night, and he is alone and dressed only in his golf shirt and orange and green checked Bermuda shorts. He is met by villagers huddled in heavy furs who stare suspiciously at him with expressions of dread and horror. He's a friendly guy, even among strangers, always ready to buy the first round, so he puts his hand out and flashes him his best smile. But they shriek and shrink back, crossing themselves theatrically. A horse-drawn sleigh stands waiting in the middle of the snowy road, apparently meant for him, the driver's face hidden in his upturned collar and large fur hat, the horses impatiently snorting plumes of white fog. There are thick fur wraps laid out for him on the seat, so he crawls into the sleigh and pulls them around him, and they're off, whipping over the snow-swept mountains with alarming speed, the sleigh's bells tolling funerially. The icy wind pushes his eyelashes back, but he can see nothing except the snow thudding against his chattering teeth and naked eyeballs. The sleigh stops abruptly in a neighborhood of ancient stone castles, and he's dropped off unceremoniously in front of one of them and abandoned there, the sleigh flying off into the distance, rear lanterns wagging frantically in the black night overhead, the bitter wind whistles around the lowering towers, and wolves howl menacingly in the surrounding hills. As he approaches the heavy doors, they open of their own accord, the hinges grinding, and he enters into the castle's great hall. It is starkly inhospitable, unkempt and cold, and smelling vaguely of unwashed laundry. Yet, for all that, it looks suspiciously like his own living room. The television is on, so he goes in and, exhausted by his travels, collapses in front of it, ready to accept whatever might appear there. Seems to be a sitcom with comic monsters playing a ball game of some sort with human heads. He laughs along with the canned laughter on the TV and about as sincerely his wife comes in bearing with a wink her incisors and offers him a bloody mary she has a drained and haggard look not at all like that of the plump little country club souse he left behind well keeping house in a place like this can't be easy the children are swinging from the fixtures overhead squealing squabbling pissing drollishly upside down the big ones biting the little ones and making them cry like children everywhere he supposes though in truth he's never paid much attention to the noisome little pests the wolves are still howling ravenously out there and he can empathize with them feeling more than a bit wolfish himself the bloody mary downed in a single long swallow has picked him up but he's famished can't remember when last he ate his stomach growling like dogs fighting over a bone he has an appalling urge to set upon his daughter who has appeared succulently in the doorway pigtailed and rosy-cheeked but his wife comes in and sweeps the child away which feeling slighted he resents while understanding his resentment as instinctive and so forgivable as are surely all his crimes which are not really crimes at all but merely attributes of his immutable character like his domestic failings or his golf handicap. He should lift himself out of the torture instrument that is his chair and go see what's available in the meat locker. But he's overwhelmed by a terrible weariness, which he associates with the breaking of dawn. His other children come in for a bedtime kiss, gnashing their fangs as they crawl over him. He manages to fend them off, but he is growing weaker. Outside the wind is howling, and branches scrape against the castle walls like creatures of the night, clawing their way in. Of course, he is a creature of the night, which is ending. He should be making his way to the cellar for a little shut-eye under the cobwebs, if he could only move. But the heavy front doors creak open again, and there's his neighbor, the doctor, who has a nasty habit of turning up just when his strength is waning. Always a damned nuisance with his loathsome crosses and his garlicky breath and unbearable platitudes. Now he's talking about getting up a round of golf on Sunday. For some reason, the word Sunday makes his head ache. just behind his eyes and his hemorrhoids flare up and he knows the doctor said it on purpose. If he could rise from his chair, he'd go over and bite his neck. He should at least try to stay awake. He's pretty sure the doctor's going to stake his heart when he drops off, but too late, his eyelids, somewhere there's the seductive whirring of little wings. Drop like iron shutters. His night is
0: done. Thank you so much for reading that story. It's really strange and enchanting. In your story, we encounter a character mired in domesticity, who half inhabits a fantastical other realm, a realm in which he closely resembles a vampire. The story balances perfectly between the quotidian and the fantastic. Words and phrases like meat locker, torture chamber that is his chair, acting as portals between these two realms. But in fact, is the story trying to show us that despite our comfortable seeming modern trappings, we're closer to something more ominous?
1: Well, that's kind of the stuff of horror stories in the first place that you have... Um always a f- sense of uh, ordinariness of the commonplace of things that everybody's familiar with and there's an undertone of something a bit ominous and that ominous thing uh, usually has to do with some sort of scary uh, death threat um, in this case I wasn't really f- meditating on that I mean I wasn't, That's not what launched the, the tale uh, it just comes naturally when you create such a metaphor, the metaphor the playfulness of it was um a consequence of just thinking of, uh, in a way, pop figures. He's a—vampires are kind of pop romantic figures, and uh, seeing them from just some uh, new angle, something that would be a little different. And I was also focused on writing very, very short pieces. Uh, i just finished um, a sequel to my first book, and it was um, 10 years in the making, so to speak, And uh, I had finished over 400,000 words, and I was setting it aside to let it uh, stew a while. And um, I felt a need to just do very brief, quick things. I didn't want to get into anything very complicated. So I was playing with maybe several dozen uh, little metaphors that just popped to mind. And if one of them started to grow into something larger, I dropped it. I was... Intentionally hanging on to this idea of writing, one, two, three-page tales, and of course I have this long link with dealing with uh, pop figures and with um, with uh, uh, mythic figure, fairy tale figures, and so on. So. Uh, amongst all my uh, file folders full of uh, unfinished one-liners, there was a one-liner about um, about a, a guy who um, leaves his golf game and ends up in Transylvania. And I, it was just a simple little uh, notion that I had. And I thought, well, let's see if I can do that one. That was the mood I was in. And uh, so I started then not with the... Premises of horror, or the idea of parodying horror, but with a, with a, a kind of pop lit figure, uh, who um, who had been done and redone a thousand times, and I just wanted to have this guy feel like he'd when he got to the castle he was home, and of course that generated the the second thought that uh, his home, as it really is, is a, perhaps a lot like uh, Dracula's castle. Also, and not just at Dracula's castle, is like his home, and so it it, it caused me to play with the whole domestic uh, metaphor of family life, children, wives, uh, having a drink, sing in front of the TV, and so on, in the context of his um, uh, transporting tra- transportation to uh, to a a, a, a a vampire situation. So he's his. His domesticity has been carried into this um, this vampiric uh, life, and reflects back upon the life. Of course, it does. You can't avoid that. You've got a a metaphor. You start to play with it, and it reveals all its uh, inner elements. Luckily, they weren't enough to make me drive on into larger tale. It satisfied itself quite quickly, and it did it often with um, with uh, tiny little fragments of things that just opened up this uh, instantly opened up this range of of uh, what you might call kind of secondary uh, thoughts that that lie there uh, perhaps only uh, suggested but it's simple things like the TV program that he happens to look at and this this flashed to mind as I was whizzing past that line and it worked just fine for kind of encapsulating as a kind of tale inside a tale about itself so I would say that the motifs of the vampire the typical ones, the ones that uh, are parodied in a million films um, or exercised in a million films are there but only because of that original choice and that the rest is is um, has to do with this playful concept that
0: I began with. It's fascinating. I. It's particularly interesting that you started off that the seed for the story was that motif, that metaphor of vampirism. And even if, as you say, those secondary layers that built around it, the sense of him being a domestic man, him having domestic trappings, came later, I wonder if there's a comment here, or at least... A suggestion that runs through a lot of your work, which is that these initial seeds, these initial motifs, which can at times seem like caricature and that they've they've been done, as you say, a million times before, but there's something so rich in that for a, for a writer such as yourself to to mine and to to delve into. And I think I wonder if it's particularly interesting that when you talk about that in terms of wanting to write something brief. I wonder if you're trying to focus that act down, distill it down in a way that perhaps in your more prolix works, as you mentioned, the recent one and The Public Burning, whether this is a a different aspect of that same project of um, honing in on that central idea.
1: Mm, Well, the 400,000-plus word manuscript is also a distillation. Uh, it's just that uh, there was so much more that the distillation ends up being still kind of monstrous work, and the public burning too. I mean you the public burning could have been ten times as long and but the 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 difference really is the uh what the metaphor offers you. so my one absolute commitment to truth is the truth of the metaphor as imagined. So if you take any particular metaphor, what one has to do intransigently is obey its inner uh, needs to to express itself. Sometimes that can be a very short thing, as in this particular tale and many others I was writing at the time, but sometimes not. Sometimes the content of the metaphor, as you begin to open it up, is much richer than you at first imagined. The public burning began as a much smaller idea. But what opened up there was history itself. And of course, history is a bottomless hole. And once I found myself into the whole issue of history, the, the length of the work and the depth of research and so on, just uh, altered dramatically the original concept, which is a piece of street theater. So uh, in in this particular time in my writing life, I was eager not to get trapped in another big work. I saw that the the 400,000 word plus more than that uh a uh, typescript was going to uh, print was going to require uh a lot of work. I, I had long long months of work ahead of me. And I was taking a break from that uh, ordeal which had begun back when um uh, the, uh, the the second bush first got elected to office. So you can see how far back it goes. This millennium as it were. And uh, and in fact, the story idea for it began in the 60s, so it's something that's been with me a long time and it was going to continue to be with me. So my goal was not to fulfill a metaphor's demands uh, in terms of opening up any particular metaphor and seeing it through. It was opening up the metaphor, guessing what lay ahead, and selecting from those that seemed to have uh, a kind of lightness and a, a being and a... Quickness of expression and a very uh, uh, precise and limited uh, uh, textual need to fulfill itself, and so this one seemed to be, you know, it's almost a little joke. A guy gets in his golf pants, thinks he's going to the barber shop, and ends up in Transylvania, in uh, Dracula's castle, and uh, realizes he's back home again. That's a kind of gag, and from that, so it meant to me if I can. Play this one out. I'm not going to be into another 400,000-word book. I'm going to get this done in a lot shorter space. And, of course, the two pages is what it took. That commitment to metaphor is the secret to length. It's not something you you plan in advance. I'm going to write a 300-page a book. That's not what you do, or a two-page story. You open up this uh, central metaphor and work with it until you see its limitations and if it looks like it's going to be huge without necessarily being uh valuable that is some things get very big but could just as well do without them uh, they can be abandoned still you haven't thrown yourself deep into the pit of of, uh, of the complete uh, writing of it and so consequently m- my work has been very difficult to determine what it is in length in publishing i've published many works that are are shorter than novels but longer than stories and they can be called novellas or long stories or whatever but they are they are simply what they are they have fulfilled themselves in the length that that uh, that that the, in which they are written and some things have gotten huge and many stories i've written a lot of one-page stories that just presented themselves to me as something like a one off just going to work in that space and this one was kind of like that
0: the story, as you've mentioned, um, deals with the metaphor of vampirism and uh, overlays that with this domestic narrative as well. There was something to me truly horrific in the phrase "his unbearable platitudes." It made me laugh, but I, it also made me think about what the what the true nature, what the horror of this story really is. What it, what lies behind this this veneer? And I, I wonder if if you. If you saw any particular significance in that phrase,
1: well, it, it, it you know popped up uh, just as very useful. This is the the, the typical scientist figure in the dra- in the vampire stories who uh, knows the um, the formula for um, heart-staking and. Uh, and uh, defeating vanquishing vampires, uh, keep them up till sunrise and so on, and who carries around a lot of this uh, uh, mock Christian symbology and who is always given as a consequence of his self-righteous actions to a certain amount of uh, platitudinizing. And um, I I mean, probably, probably that vampire story from the beginning had in it the desire to... Uh, to uh, mock this uh, uh, so-called scientist who is anything but one. And that was an opportunity uh, when let, letting the vampire look at his enemy and uh, declare him for what he is. Um, and of course, that's right. From the vampire's viewpoint, uh, the doctor is horror, the, the, the true image of horror. And so if you can sympathize with... Um, this uh, rather bad father and husband and, um, and pathetic, uh, pathetically, uh, entrapped uh, vampire. Um, you can, uh, if you can empathize with him, uh, the doctor does become in a way the villain of the tale.
0: We've talked briefly about your, um, projects on exploding and expanding metaphors and investigating pop culture and the intersection between pop culture and myth. We've already talked about the public burning. I wonder, what do you see now in the world as it is today that's changed that would alter the picture of a project like that, the project perhaps that you've just completed? Uh,
1: Nothing at all would would alter it. Um, Everything uh, that is embedded in myth and tale um, tends to last forever. It's got uh, some sort of justification for having having been treated as such in the past and uh i mean some tales vanish and some myths die but on on the on the whole the mythic thinking and the tale telling are elements of of uh human discourse that are not going to go away and that therefore any uh engagement with uh, myth and tale are uh, are as valid now as they were when uh, the author of the Gilgamesh epic uh, dealt with some old stone tablets knocked together by Sumerians a thousand years before he wrote the thing down. So he was playing with the same elements that writers today, still today, play with. And uh, that's, it's true that, you know, life changes in some ways, and Um, But, you know, not enough that it really affects the basic principle of how one confronts the mythic debris of one's own time and how one deals with uh, the forms that tale-telling take, including uh, newspapers and uh, preachers' uh, sermons, etc., which are all part of the same kind of tale-telling. Not all of it, therefore, uh, the kind of tales everyone wants to be listening to, and therefore tales that need to be kind of undone or mocked or, or, or removed from the public discourse. So um, that element of confronting myth, not trying to eliminate myth, just confronting it, and confronting the misconceptions often of tales, um, as long as there are writers,
0: writers are going to be doing that. Your work has often parodied pop culture. I wonder if you've seen it change there at all
1: well pop culture is like any other form of uh, human exchange it goes undergoes constant um, um, adjustments according to the time so it's it's like any kind of argument that one has about the meaning of life let's say the meaning of life as defined um, Five thousand years ago has something in common with the way we might define it now, but there have been a lot of changes. Uh, we have different kinds of knowledge, different kinds of uh, approaches to things. We had a history of stuff to have to deal with, and the pop culture too undergoes constant transformation. So, um, I would, uh, or pop, not only pop uh, culture in the sense of, uh, in the sense of the um, the, the stuff that's traded as songs or. Or jokes or what have you, but even just uh the the ongoing uh- c- sort of non intellectual culture that kind of thing that that fulfills uh people's days when they're not really thinking about anything very seriously um sports and uh um, you know your football team or your favorite rock star or um, all these kind of elements that that are part of your day-to-day life. So the tale encounters and the myth encounters take place in that arena, so they will look a little different from generation to generation. Uh, we didn't have, um, you know, say when uh, Cervantes was written writing, we didn't have computers. So it's got to be different now than when he wrote, but what Cervantes did, we're still doing. And it's just that the the kind of bits and pieces of it are transforming from day to day i i i don't see um, I, I don't follow pop culture closely i know it i grew up in it and i have what i grew up in as an indelible part of my own experience i can't avoid it and i it's all around me every day you know the rest of my life i pay much pay increasingly less attention to it only when it serves a purpose, and I want to get something said or get something... Um, um, for example, when I did The Public Burning, that took place in '53, so it was very convenient to use the culture of that time, the pop culture of that time, the pop songs, the movies, etc., that would would kind of uh, echo the events of the, the book itself. And if I were writing a book about uh, 9-11, let's say, I would do the same thing. I would think about all the ways in which current pop culture... Uh, played upon the elements of that story and my own story within it, so, um, which is different from those who, for whom pop culture is the theme. That is, there are writers for whom that is the stuff of writing, of their writing, that they are intent upon engaging with pop culture as their main enterprise, and possibly to, to. Um, celebrate some aspect of it, or to to denigrate some aspect of it, which is not my goal. Uh, to me, it's all part of the same larger, um, uh, amount, larger I don't know what to call it, uh, cl- cloud almost of pop. Uh, or of, of of human interaction in which within which anything I write has to take place, and that human interaction includes, but not exclusively, pop culture.
0: From your first book, *The Origin of the Brunists*, um, your work has often questioned and sometimes parodied the role of a creator. I wonder if that's been the case in your more recent projects.
1: Well, the uh, creator, I I hope you meaning with a small c. Um, the life of the writer is the making of things and is is a creating of things so inevitably there's a feeling of interlinkage with all other forms of uh, of of creators uh, including say composers or artists but also including the the so-called divinities so that inter interlinking with uh the, the the, the creative aspect of life is a kind of inevitability, I think, of of most creative work. And certainly in my case, since I'm getting right at the mythic materials that hold up um, various notions of creation uh, and seeing them for what they hopefully are, that is, inventions of, uh, of, of human minds. And with all the limitations of that, including the historical ones, we were just talking about how we go through various transitions. So we're passing through transitions. Now we're clinging to an awful lot of mythic debris from the past, but we're also, you know, hastily inventing new and uh, trying to struggle against that stuff with a variety of stories that sometimes become somewhat mythic in their own way. So all of that stuff has to do with creation. I dealt most specifically I think with with that interaction between between creation as a as a Uh, concept and the uh, creator making things uh, with my baseball book which is about a a guy who plays a baseball game on his kitchen table with dice and in effect runs a little universe of his own uh, called Universal Baseball Association and he is its um, demon as it were and uh, his, his name conceals the 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 familiar tetragram of of uh the biblical tetragram of j h w h and so that was an uh, an intentional play in that single case with the creator and this guy creating like a novelist would create his little story on his kitchen table but mostly it just crops up because you know people make things and um in the current work yes there's a kind of creator type in a way there's a young wannabe um, uh, novelist fiction writer young woman who's um, struggling with all those myths of the past uh, dumping on them mostly and um, and looking for her own way to make things and she deals with a lot of the issues that have to do with quote creation and quote and um, so you don't give it up she just becomes a kind of voice like in the in the original the brunas we've got miller and Happy Bottom who both in their different ways are he's right he's doing the newspaper thing creating this cult out of nothing just out of his own kind of ego and the woman who's trying to catch his attention who's writing him little tales about the divinity so from that moment forward it's true I'm constantly playing with this kind of a character and still
0: am you just mentioned nine eleven, and we've talked about myth I wonder if there's a particular myth or group of myths that you're coming back to since that event at all, or if you are, if you've been thinking of myth differently since those events?
1: No, uh, they, they, what, what happens in the course of the events, that you, uh, you know, somebody else can write this one, but the same uh, uh, acts of assuming divine knowledge is what anybody who thinks they're writing a Bible is doing and uh setting up uh the consequences of those in some real way uh w- w- those were the the unfortunate facts behind uh the public burning story which was this execution of this jewish couple uh for alleged uh spying and but it was a a kind of frenetic scapegoating uh in order to um justify uh, or to, uh, in some odd way, alleviate one's own fears and and terrors. Uh, so that act of scapegoating is extremely ancient. It's f- certainly way pre-Christian, and but it's part of the Christian story as well. And that notion of scapegoating emerged directly out of 9-11, just like it had never gone away. And I would, of course, if I were working on a, a mythic tale about uh, about that era about that moment it would have to embrace this the same materials that are, i I think are right inside the public burning so i i won 't do it because I feel I have done that, but it is open to anybody to think about that and the, the it doesn 't actually change it's unfortunately it doesn 't change that 's what 's the most di- distressing part of it that 's the the, the horror story bit, as you might call it, that um, that these um, these ancient habits, very ancient uh, habits, which are so destructive and 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 um, and damaging to the human condition, uh, don't go away. They just keep coming back, and people who seem to be nice people espouse them, and the next thing you know, we're right back into the same uh, dreadful stuff that uh, has happened from the earliest days
0: You've lived in the UK for 30 years and in that time written some of the quintessentially American novels, The Public Burning which we were just talking about I wonder if living here has lent anything to that very distinctive sensibility that you have which is so American in its, um, its feel and in its register and well
1: i don 't think so. I think that um, what is definitely just what Joyce said when he vanished to uh, to the continent and and abandoned Ireland. It has to do with um, the ability to see more clearly what you 've left behind than to live inside it and try to try to adjust to the daily changes. So backing away, getting a distance from from your subject, something I've always always practiced with one notable exception, which was, uh, I mean, this idea that um, I almost all everything I'd written had been written after midnight and out of the country, and yet it was mostly about the country in broad daylight. So uh, it's um, that kind of. Um, distancing oneself that allows the memory and the imagination to work on it in a better way than if you live in it. The exception was um, I went to uh, Venice in 1987 and took with me um, uh, at least half a dozen great big mailbags, those great big gray things, filled with books. And all these books, is was pre-Internet days, so... Once I got there, I knew I would have no access to anything I needed unless I took it with me. Uh, when I was going to do the sequel to The Brunus, which is what the book I've just finished. And uh, I arrived, and it was a very um, snowy time. It was in January. It was wonderful. The Venice and the snow, was just spectacular. But my study was on, in a loft area that needed new windows, and then with the snow outside, I couldn't work in it. So, until the windows were put in and things work very slowly. In Venice, everything comes in by boat, takes forever. So I wandered the city looking for, um, just looking at the beautiful things, uh, all the churches, all of the uh, artwork and so on, the galleries and museums, and taking a lot of photographs of the snow and all that. And uh, while doing that, I arrived in a, a snowy campo right outside the Rialto Bridge, San Bartolomeo. And over a doorway, I saw a sign that said um, Pinocchio in Venice. And I thought, well, I've always wanted to write a story about Pinocchio. I especially, especially was distressed at the um, at the way the blue-haired fairy ruined the story. And I wanted to get back at her somehow. And I thought, well, this would be fun to, to attempt this. And I had in mind, again, you know, a, a three-page story maybe. And I went in to see the exhibit, which is old uh, artwork done for various editions of the Pinocchio, and um, walked out wondering, well, what could I do with this? And there in the campo is a statue of Goldoni. And so I thought, right, Commedia dell'arte and Pinocchio, and I had my story idea. And I rushed home and began writing it out by hand without the ability to go up and use that that area at the top. And it also allowed me to dash around Venice with a purpose. Then I suddenly thought, well, all right. If I've got this guy in Venice, I better know it like he would know it. I decided he was an art historian. You know, not to do anything that moved because Blue-haired Fairy wouldn't like that. So he deals with art, and he's coming back a uh, hundred years old, uh, leaving his Ivy League university to come back to uh, his homeland and reconsider his uh, Nobel Prize-winning writings about. Um, About um, Italian art, and that was what got me there, and then he meets all the characters from the original Collodi story, and everything takes off from that moment, but then I had this unique experience, never before had I had it, that I could actually write about where I was, so there I was in this beautiful city, and every note I took was about a place, I ended up finding all the little uh, you might say, the stages for this cometa l'arte stuff, I would pick this little corner of this campo or this particular uh, room or something and then plan on staging my little next little act there and photograph it and think about it and look at all of the, even the graffiti of the moment, if something was closed at that moment, it was closed in my book as well and do all of the uh, the, the intense being in a place while writing about it that I had never experienced before. It was terrific. I really enjoyed it. And I had spent the whole year working. I had to send all those mail bags back unopened and worked the whole year on this Pinocchio in Venice story. Didn't finish it. Had to get back because I had a couple of sites. I realized I needed to go to it. I hadn't gone to it while I was living there. Rented a place and went back for three months in the summer and finished the book. But it was a, it was probably the happiest writing experience I ever had. But it's the only one that I wrote while living in the space in which I was writing.
0: Can I ask if um, your novel "Spanking the Maid" had uh, was written? In England, because that seems uh, quite a
1: yeah. That's 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 we were talking about how the quintessential American nature of my work, and that's one that's certainly quintessentially British. And um, it, it came, I'd been living in Britain for quite a long time by that time, and uh, knew it well, and um, had in fact launched. Uh, another piece that I never didn't get around to writing, finally, for another 20 years, and I wrote it in America, but it had a little bit to do with Britain was Briar Rose. But uh, Spanking the came about as a kind of uh, uh, purest of accidents, and that, that was I was working in the British Museum, uh, the old one, uh, I mean working in the British Library, the old one in the British Museum, and um, I don't know if you've ever worked in such a space, but you had to sit at one of these desks, claim it as your own, and then send in a, a, a list of books you wanted to have brought to that desk. You can't go look in the stacks yourself. And that always took quite a long time, and you had time to kill while you put in your list. Even if you made the list up the night before and turned it in the first thing in the morning, you still had a time to wait for it. And so what did you do? You went out for a coffee, came back, or browse the streets at uh, that time the Tottenham Court Road was uh, not full of electronic shops it was full of porn shops with a lot of uh, of uh, old Victorian um, uh, porn literature and, and or you browse the, the catalogs of the books being held by the British Library which in those days were inbound books with pasted in entries from page to page and of course they wouldn't always be alphabetical because you run out of pages and I was just roaming pages and I don't know what I was looking for, something having to do with Bruin, with the uh, public burning, which is what I was researching, but as I turned a page, I came on a whole page of pasted-in entries for uh, manuals for how masters for masters to read about how to treat their servants and uh, they were for masters and mistresses, and the kind of discipline one should use, and the kind of uh, authority one should exert, and so forth, and there were occasional, there were two books, I remember, that were written for uh, literate uh, work uh, servants who could read about how to behave toward their masters. I have some wonderful stuff right out of the Victorian era, and I, I, you couldn't take checkbooks out, you had to, or even photocopy them. You had to take them to your desk and write by hand, write out all of those uh, things. as pre-laptop days, pre-computer days, and and write all that stuff out in notebook pages, which I did, not knowing for sure what I was going to do, except I had a kind of master-made idea right away. You know, how would I use this material? And of course, it occurred to me right away, well, Spanking literature is the quintessential British form. I think it's more, more, much more even than, say, the Dickensian novel. And so I went back to those shops on Tottenham Court Road, picked up a few of their, uh, their little uh, books to get the language, and took them home and uh, began to marry these two elements together. All the while, continuing to work on the public burning. And as soon as I got to the end of the public burning, again, looking for something short to do, I found those notes I'd written to myself, and I sat down and wrote it. So it's like a strange sort of uh, follow-on, um, not a sequel by any sense of the imagination, but a kind of strange thing that happened as a consequence of researching public burning in the British Museum.
0: Mr. Coover, Robert Coover, thank you so much for talking to me today. Thank you for being so generous in your responses and for reading the story. Yeah, so. We
1: haven't even talked about uh, your own mythic uh, uh, elements here,
0: those blue suede shoes I've been staring uh. at. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're welcome to borrow them anytime. <laughs>